Good morning. There we go. I get to say that twice today. Uh, good news for those of you who are really, really into musicals. Today's sermon is actually nothing like a musical, but so maybe it's good news for those who aren't really into musicals. <laughs> um, that would have been a great intro into a musical number, though, just now, wouldn't it? Uh, but today's passage, as I was reviewing for today's sermon, really made me think of the opening scene of Fiddler on the Roof. Now, if you're not familiar with that musical, it's a, it's a musical that, that focuses on a Jewish community in Western Russia in the year 1905. Now, in this, this opening number, there's all the music, and you're getting introduced to the community. And, and there is one interlude where you, you see the old rabbi of the community surrounded by young men, eager, eager to glean whatever information they can. And one astute young man thinks he, he's got a good question, one that might be a little too hard for the rabbi to answer. And so he asks the rabbi, Rabbi, is there a blessing for the Tsar? Now, the Tsar at that time was Nicholas II, who was incredibly anti-Semitic. And under his reign, there was much persecution of the Jewish people, as well as many of them dying. So this is a good question to ask. Maybe this is the humdinger he thought it would be. And the rabbi, with short reflection, says, Is there a blessing for the Tsar? Of course, May the Lord bless and keep the Tsar far away from us. <laughs> it's the kind of humor you get in musicals if you're not familiar with them, which I really enjoy. Now, we're not going to be talking a lot about musicals today. We're actually continuing our House Rules series, which is working through First Timothy. Today, we're going to be picking up in chapter 2, if you want to go ahead and find that in your Bible. Now, last week, we solidified one of the primary purposes of this book, which is standing firm against false doctrine. And part of that is focusing on the truth. I really appreciated how Pastor James shared the process of learning to recognize counterfeit money two weeks ago, that when studying this, do you study the counterfeit money to recognize counterfeits? No, you study real money so much that when the counterfeit is in front of you, you know immediately this is not the real thing. So we study truth. And last week, we had the trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom, Paul says, I am the worst. We saw that we need strength that comes from Christ to stay faithful in his service. We saw that faith and good conscience are indispensable in discerning false doctrines and sustaining our, our walk, our service to God through these kinds of situations. Now, as we move forward, we begin to qualify a little more specifically the how of that service. What does it really look like. I find this quite encouraging. Like the young man who asked the question of the rabbi, the rabbi could have just said yes, but instead he's actually given a specific example of a blessing for the tsar. We're going to get more specific in what this life of a Christian looks like. These are house rules. If you want a harmonious church that is actively engaged in the community without being seduced by it, Here's some things to be looking for and working on within your congregation. 1 Timothy chapter 2 
and starting in verse 1. It says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. It starts out, I urge then, first of all, which doesn't mean it's the very first thing you do, though that's not a bad idea. The expression means that this is of first importance. As you look out at a broken world, the deceit and sin and seduction of spiritual practices that deny Christ, as you look out at this, pray. It's the most important thing. Bring your petitions, prayers, intercession, and even thanksgiving for all people everywhere. Christ came to save sinners, which is all people. We lift them before our Father in this conversation that we today generally just categorize all these things as prayer. Petitions, that is asking God for something perhaps for ourselves or others in this context. Paul is saying petition for others. Go before God and ask things for others. Pray for them. Intercede for them. Intercession is offering a prayer, asking God to intervene in some way in someone else's life because of situations or sins that we know exist in all people. Paul says, intercede for all and offer thanksgiving for all people. Now, this, this might be a bit harder because I'm, I'm not sure I'm thankful for everyone. Thank you that someone else is there with me. Uh, but Paul, Paul seems pretty insistent. He says, first of all, this is of first importance. If our heart is in this place where we can do these things, Paul has started to describe, and, and they represent the most important thing we are doing, I have to imagine that a lot of the other house rules we're going to be able to do much more easily. The exhortation to bring before our God all people is of first order importance. Now, this idea of all people also is very significant. You might remember we addressed some of the kinds of false doctrines that we're trying to get into the church. Uh, the idea of all people addresses in some ways Gnosticism. Gnosticism, which is, is an ideology in some ways that placed personal knowledge or experience as the, the pinnacle of truth, of knowing things, not necessarily taught or instructed or other ways. So for you to gain this personal knowledge that, that there, are, there are all sorts of ways to go about. How do I expose myself to different religious influences or philosophies to gain this personal knowledge? That is the go in the extreme. A Gnostic might even say that, that you couldn't learn about who Jesus was, but you had to experience him in some, some way. That the divine had to be uncovered for you, which sounds, if you just had been talking about the Holy Spirit illuminating truth to you, maybe that could fly by. But this was used sometimes even to the extreme where it would weaken or exclude concrete doctrine, concrete teaching, true doctrine. It would undermine respected church leaders. And so you see Gnosticism creates significant challenges to maintaining true doctrine when the goal is your own personal experience or truth being revealed to you. So the truth was a secret to be uncovered and not everyone could find the truth, not all people. 
And so we see also as Paul repeats again and again, all people, that he's counteracting this, this form of elitism that was developing within the church. If you needed help encountering Jesus, but maybe you just hadn't figured out the right series of prayers or meditations or whatever to gain this personal knowledge that would be God's truth to you, if you were well-connected enough or favored with a, a spiritual leader they might choose to help you uncover this truth that God had for you. Or they might say, that's the truth that always existed, but, but I have the way for you to get connected to it. Forget that Jesus came to save sinners. All people revealed himself pretty directly and in no secret fashion, and furthermore gave specific instructions on how his disciples should go around the world teaching others everything that he taught them. So if Gnosticism in this description starts feeling heretical, kind of all over the place, potentially manipulative, and closer to extortion of believers than helping them to true doctrine, it's because it was. Gnosticism was bad. It was one of the false doctrines that was infiltrating the church of Ephesus. It wasn't for all, but Jesus came for all. And so in that theme, prayers are for all people that Jesus came to save. This is a house rule that results in action. It also answers the question, the question of, is there a prayer for the czar? Yes, there is. Is there a prayer for the president? Yes. Wait, you mean I should pray? Yes, you should pray. <laughs> Whoever that is that you're about to fill in, are they part of the all people? Yes, you can pray for them. Jesus came to save them. They should be prayed for. In the passage, though, it does specifically identify kings and all those who are in authority as needing our prayers. Perhaps because we are just as likely to curse them as to bring their names before our Father in heaven. That they are specifically identified, be, not because, well, maybe they do have greater need, but we're talking about us and how do we live. And the temptation for us is ever in the, for the one who's in authority to not pray, to not lift them before the Lord in the ways we should. We read in the rest of verse 2 some hopes of what these prayers might accomplish, namely that, we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So you can see maybe why this reminded me of Fiddler on the Roof. The Tsar issued an edict, that's Nicholas II, that forced the evacuation of tens of thousands of Jews in Western Russia. The edict was that they could no longer live in communities under 10,000. Very weird, but that described many of these Jewish communities who had withdrawn so they could have kind of their own religious communities set up. Many of them had to re relocate to Poland or to the United States, or they had to concentrate themselves in large cities like Odessa, which is within the borders of modern-day Ukraine. If you're not into musicals and that kind of history, maybe you're into American Tale, and we see Feifel Mouskowitz. You guys, you know who? Hey, if you remember the very first movie, he leaves a town called Shoska, which is a real place. It's a city in northeast modern-day 
Ukraine. And if you watch that movie, the Imperial Russian army comes, I mean, the cats come into town to run out all the mice. If you look at the uniforms the cats are wearing, they're wearing Cossack uniforms, which were the Imperial Russian uniforms. That story is set in the 1880s. And so this is a familiar story in the world, and we pray for the Tsar. Of course, today, ironically, there's a war administered by a Russian dictator displacing many people with very Jewish roots in Ukraine, a country whose president has Jewish heritage. And it's interesting in the most tragic way, but it ties things together with the question of, do we pray then for, for dictators? Do we pray for the oligarchs of the world? Yes. Do you know who the emperor of Rome was? I'll give you one guess. At the time, Paul is writing Timothy. Do you remember? Nero. It was Nero. Nero, who, under his rule, there were intense, localized periods of persecution to the Christian community. Nero, who notoriously used Christians as candles in his gardens, and in a, week, in a month where fireworks are abundantly purchased and used. It is a gruesome definition to remember that Roman candle doesn't just mean a firework, but was also an abhorrent practice to execute and burn the deceased in the most dehumanizing fashion. The prayers then here are for peace that allows godliness and holiness to abound. We can and we should take it further to pray for salvation as well. But Paul here is focusing on peace. Even under an emperor such as Nero, the Christian community had a huge benefit under the Pax Romana. This was a time of unparalleled peace in the ancient Mediterranean world that resulted from the authority and the governance of Rome over the whole area. It created an environment that was conducive to safe travel and relatively safe living, free of fear of barbarian invasion. The gospel could spread. Paul could travel on these missionary journeys we reference. And Christian communities, once established, at least had a hope. They at least had a hope of being able to worship and live holy lives in relative peace. Not that that always panned out, but at least there was a chance. Paul seems to be encouraging prayer for leaders that they would wield their God-given power in ways that establish and maintain peace, if for no other reason than the evan that, that evangelism can move forward without interruption, that in the godliness and holiness of peaceful living, that also people would be able to share this hope, this godliness, this holiness with others. In fact, Paul is saying that this is the thing to do. It's, it's part of this praying for all people, and it's of first importance. So we read in verse 3 as he sums up, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We're reminded again of the trustworthy saying in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, that Christ came to save sinners. God desires all to hear and receive him. This should motivate us. 
It should motivate us to share the gospel as we can and to be so thankful that we do live in peace here. Let us pray for our leader so that it may continue from President Biden to your boss, whatever uh, place you work. You know, some of you are actually the, the boss in authority. I, this passage, if we take it from the top to the bottom of those in authority, your Christian employees, if you're the boss, should be praying for you. That might make you nervous. I don't know. <laughs> Depending on what the prayer is. And to be clear, I'm not talking about the prayer of, oh, God, help, help my boss understand that he or she needs to approve my time off request. We're not talking about the prayers that are your personal laundry list of desires or expectations or wants. We're talking about a prayer that is focused on the peace that allows us to live godly and holy lives and creates an environment conducive to the kingdom of God advancing. These are real prayers that you would wield your authority in God-honoring ways that promote promote peace, and create environments in which godliness can abound. So let's pray for leaders, even leaders like Putin, that God will move his heart toward peace, whatever, and or by whatever means. But we could pause and ask, we could ask who? Who could orchestrate such a change of heart? Who hears our prayers? Who can elevate our ability? That's a big ask, by the way. Who can elevate our ability to request such large things from God himself? The house rules say you can't look anywhere else except to one man. As a Christian, you don't get choices. This is the rule. This is verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. There is one God. We are reminded of the praise Paul spontaneously offers to God in verse 17 of chapter 1, the immortal, invisible, the only God. There is only one true God in the broiling mass of, of, of spiritual expression and so-called divine entities of that day. And today it's the same. There is one God in the mass of things that are appealing to us and saying, live for this or this thing. God, this God, is so far removed or above, or beyond, or powerful, or magnificent, or whatever term you would apply that is a divine attribute, that the human, in our humility, if we are keeping things real, recognize that our ability to approach God seems kind of limited. That same one true God, immortal, invisible, how do we go to him? We read in Job chapter 9, the inner monologue of Job, as he wrestles with how he can approach God in the turmoil of his life. He certainly has things he wants to bring to God. But recognizing his humble place in creation, he says of God, starting in verse 32, he says, He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in the court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. Now, 
Now that one has come. The one who can both stand with us and with God, who can touch both, speak to both, represent both, a mediator who can be for both because he is both and there is no other. This excludes any sort of universalism, as if Jesus in his desire to save all provides multiple ways to salvation. There's no open door that God operates through multiple religions to save, that any acknowledgement of a supreme being and religious practices stemming from that is equal to depending directly on this one mediator. This is absolutely 100% an exclusive claim that the only way to be reconciled with God is through this man, Christ Jesus, and his work. True doctrine. You can claim to believe in the same God. In fact, you can believe in the same God. But if you haven't placed Jesus in his rightful spot as the one mediator between if you haven't come to Christ, when you need a mediator, you want someone who can stand in between as solid and compassionate and equitably as possible. That mediator is and only is Jesus. He comes to earth, becomes a man, knows our condition, and so bridges the gap between God and man. And then we know that he returns to heaven as an advocate for us. But more than that, verse 6 says that he is the ransom for all people again. Jesus may be the exclusive way to God, but he does not exclude people. He is the only way, but anyone can go through him. He is the man, ransom, and mediator for this job, and no one else can do it. It's really great to have a mediator in a relationship with such a large difference in the distribution of power. <laughs> as between God and a human. Because when we look at ourselves and compare ourselves to God, in our lives, we have so many needs. Because I, I know that's really what makes us feel more of a fuzzy inside, is coming and being told that, that we are needy people. We have physical, emotional, mental, relational, spiritual. We have fake and real needs, ones of which we are aware and ones we are oblivious to. We are needy, and whether we confess it or not, we need God. And Jesus is for us. He is our advocate in God's court. He is the king who hears his people, the shepherd who would keep us from harm. And so it makes me wonder in this process, in this mediation, what happens when mediator becomes ransom? Because the situation is, I've disobeyed God. And there are things now in motion as a result that bring punishment and pain in this life and can also bring punishment and pain for eternity. Jesus as mediator, as advocate, certainly applies to me right now that I have someone standing before the Father, hearing my needs, presenting my needs, also though ministering to me in ways that will move me to praise for the one true God, drawing me into a joyful and life-giving experiences. He shares things that only the Father knows with us. Boy, that's helpful. He calls us his friends but when you need a mediator, it's usually because something is broken. Jesus is a good mediator. He's got what we're looking for. He has skin in the game for both sides. But how 
How does he help us work this one out? Why the ransom? Here's the problem. The God of the universe, our creator, wants a personal relationship with me. He wants a personal relationship with me. He created me for that purpose, and I have screwed that up. For that reason, I don't have the luxury of saying, it's ridiculous that God, who always created things to be personal, is going to take my sin personally. Sometimes we like to say that. Is God being punitive, that he would look at my sin or my life and identify my sins specifically as something that needs to be punished. But that ignores the fact that that's what he created you for. We don't get the luxury of saying it's ridiculous. I have to answer for this. And now Jesus as mediator is in the middle, which means the ransom is coming. The exclusiveness of Jesus as the way to God becomes a bit more nuanced as we talk about him as ransom. Because what we really mean is that the only way to have a healthy and eternal relationship with God restored is through the work and person of Jesus Christ. We should want Christ in between us and God. We need him in between. And when it comes to my sin and punishment, did you know that you can actually at least pretend you can have that conversation with God one-on-one. The problem with not using Jesus as the mediator who stands ready for you is that the only time you'll be able to have that conversation is on judgment day, and you don't have a very good defense. Besides the fact that when you stand before God on judgment day, will you even be able to speak? It seems like a pretty risky move with guaranteed disaster at the end when Jesus stands ready to be your defense, your mediator, and as we will see, your ransom. The punishment that is to come need not fall on us directly because when we go through Christ and Christ alone, he stands between us not simply as mediator, but as the sacrifice who takes the punishment that was ours to receive. Throughout scripture, we see the description of us as captives to sin. We're described as captives to sin, to situations in our lives, and our own experience in life bears out the truth of this. But he is our ransom. That is a word that means you you are buying someone's freedom. He buys our freedom from this captivity. The expense paid for our freedom was Jesus sacrificing himself in our place. So the separation, the brokenness in our relationship with God, Jesus experiences that so that we don't have to. He bears the weight and the pain of the sins we made so that we don't eternally bear it, which means If we do go through Jesus, we believe in him. We make him our mediator and our ransom, as well as our king and savior, which we read about in other places in scripture. When we do have that conversation with God at the end of time, it will look very different because God won't be looking at us to bring the charges against us of all the things we did wrong. 
he will look at us and welcome us into eternity because any charges, any punishment that should have been ours in that moment has already been paid because God accepted the ransom that Jesus offered. Paul concludes in verse 6 saying that this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. This is the truth about Christ and the truth about us. Again, in an environment, this environment where other secret truths were circulating, where truth was being watered down by mixing with other spiritual expressions, this is the truth. And Paul, Paul is one of the people that was a witness to that truth. And now, in a moment where he has the opportunity to stand firm in, its, in the proper moment, he is standing firm, witnessing to it. Part of the cosmic story of how God uses us as his witnesses in the world, as us standing in that moment for truth. John Stott sums up this whole section this way. I'm just going to quote this. He says, What we do not know is exactly how much accurate and detailed information people need to know about the man-ransom mediator before they can call on God for salvation. What we do know is that all human beings are sinful, guilty, and perishing. That no human being can save himself or herself by good works, religious observances, beliefs, or sincerity. That Jesus Christ, being God, man, and a ransom, is the only competent mediator through whom God saves, and that, therefore, it is urgent to proclaim the gospel in its fullness to as many people as possible. Our response to this knowledge is not only satisfaction in the fact that we have found the one true mediator, the ransom, the man, Jesus, who is also God, that should bring us joy. But the full response to this truth is an urgency to share this truth with others, to make this knowledge public, to be witnesses to this truth, not keeping it secret, Paul says in verse 7. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true faithful teacher of the Gentiles. I'm sure some people try to discredit Paul's witness, his faithfulness as a true teacher. Maybe they would reference his Jewish roots. Surely this man has mixed intentions and has mixed something else. But Paul doubles down. This is why he was chosen for this service, appointed as a herald and an apostle, both descriptors of one who would bring the good news of Jesus Christ, our hope and our salvation to others who had not heard. When we look at our record of Paul's life, these letters he writes to Timothy and, and elsewhere to, to whole churches, it seems he lived out this purpose well. As we move to the end of the sermon, we do begin to get a little bit more specific in ways that we should think about our life as a Christian of expectations of what we do, especially as we start looking at the next passage. I recognize today that if you've grown up in, in a Christian culture, a Christian environment, grown up in church, maybe you've grown up as a believer, the idea of Jesus being the only way is not controversial for most of us. It's something we have known for a long time and accepted for a long time. But that doesn't mean that there aren't things that will make us question, well, was this for Ephesus or was this for Timothy? Is this also for us? How is this specifically applied to us? 
the next few weeks, we're going to be dig, digging deeper into things like that. And so by way of introduction, we're going to look quickly at verse 8. Verse 8 says, Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. This is a rule. Does anyone feel like this is controversial? That's why we're starting with verse 8. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna start with verse 8. All, all of us respond to this like this is the most obvious. Like There's nothing that we would dispute with in this verse. One of our responses to all this truth, and in fact, to Paul himself as the true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles, is to listen to this request that men everywhere would pray, lifting holy hands without anger or disputing. As we look at these rules, one of the things we, one of the principles we need to apply is considering all of Scripture in our understanding and interpretation of what is being communicated. So, for example, let's start very easy. Is Paul here saying that he only expects men to pray? No, clearly not. The bulk of Scripture clearly upholds the necessity of prayer for every Christian believer. In fact, already in Timothy, in a more general way, he said, first of all, I urge you to pray. Bring your petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving for all people. So clearly, this is just something specific being drawn. It is not just about men. As we look at it further, what about the anger or disputing. Maybe your translation says quarreling. Nothing weird there. Why would you pray with anger? Why would you pray with quarreling? But as we look at all of Scripture applying that principle, it should remind us of Psalm 24 where it says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. We don't separate verse 8 from the rest of the Bible's teachings on prayer. And it also helps us understand what is being said by holy hands. Remember, this is a letter being written to a congregation that is needing to stand firm in true doctrine and fight false doctrine. So the one who comes to worship should not be one who is also lifting their hands symbolically or literally to another God. This is an image of a prayer being offered in Psalm 24 by someone whose life is not filled with unrepentant sin, whose emotions are not defied by anger, and whose life is not characterized by disputing, or as I said, if you look at verse 8, you might be thinking quarreling. As we dig in over the next couple weeks, there are things we will need to discern to tease out what exactly is Paul teaching? What is the rule being established? Is Paul wanting men to lift their hands when they pray? What if that was the application? Guys, if you're praying, dinner time, hands up. That's not what's being taught. Paul is more so establishes the rule he wants us when our life is at odds with our creator when our actions don't bring him honor when we are in conflict with others when we have sin 
Paul would rather us go toward confession and repentance, dependence on our ransom, rather than engage in an easygoing conversation with our Heavenly Father like everything is absolutely fine between us. Don't pray like everything's fine, like you have a pure heart if that's not the case. If there isn't purity, repentance is the place that we are called to. So what we find suddenly is that this rule is actually a call against hypocrisy, against unrepentance, as well as an affirmation of the posture we should have, open and receptive to what the Father has. And if we aren't actually open and have closed off areas of our lives where maybe we are protecting a sin or vice, something we need to repent of, but haven't, don't posture yourself in your prayer life like there's nothing in between you that should be confessed. Today, maybe this doesn't look like lifting hands to you. That, that's not a, uh, an expression of what's inside for you that says, I'm, I'm good. Maybe for us, it's praying out loud. Because praying out loud communicates to those around you that things are okay because you seem very confident in your prayers. You and God must be good right now, right? Don't assume a posture of holiness if it is not an accurate reflection of your life. But pursue holiness. Maybe for you, this posture is kneeling, sitting, how you hold your hands, the content of your prayer, or some other outward manifestation that is you communicating to God and potentially others that everything inside is fine. To be clear, Paul wants postures of holiness and purity to be present within the church. And here he's picking on men specifically in part because if you recall last chapter, he identified two guys who were if we look at Psalm 24, mixing in their lives false teachings, false doctrines, mysticisms, other expressions of spirituality, and we can kind of assume that these guys were also coming before the Lord and lifting their hands, which were not holy. And the church needs men who speak and lead in ways that accurately represent pure hearts and pure worship, true doctrine. And so the posture is not really about what other people see, but about how seriously you take your purity in your own worship before God. Men, let's pick on men just for a little bit. That'll be fun. If this is the way we should pray, and we take this as a rule we should have so much motivation to keep ourselves pure in a place where we can lift our voice, our hands, our eyes, whatever it is that is the outward manifestation of the purity that is inside. This should then move us to repent quickly, to resolve conflict quickly, and to not hold on to anger for so, so long. The things that we can tend to lock up inside and never let out do we hide those things from God as well? Here's the warning presented to us. Here is a goal worth pursuing. And it's also a reflection of what God wants. What is our internal condition when we offer our prayers to the Lord? And do we need to fix some things? The good news through all of this is that male or female, whatever your needs or brokenness, I know a guy who is exactly, exactly the kind of mediator you need 
who has offered you forgiveness of sins through his ransom and is your advocate in heaven even today. And with that in mind, is there anything more critical or more important than this time of prayer that we conclude our sermons with? Because as I look around, I see a lot of lovely, lovely people who love God but if I start with looking at myself, I also see a bunch of rule breakers. But we have a patient and loving father. I look around, I see a lot of people who are sitting under authority. That's all of us. And I know that we have opportunities today to implement what we learn and pray for those who are in authority over us. The people we would rather complain, curse, or tear down. And so today, as we close and turn our hearts to God, it's going to be just a little different because I'm going to allow just a little time. If there's something between you and God and it's something besides Jesus, something you've held on to, some other practice or worship or something that you recognize you've kind of put on the throne, will you confess that today? Let's pray.